Do not let me hear of the wisdom of old men, but rather of their folly, their fear of fear and frenzy, their fear of belonging to another or to others or to God. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. That was T.S. Eliot um, talking, I think, about doctors. Um, uh, Henry Marsh's book, Do No Harm, feels to me a uh, manifesto, a treatise, around humility in medicine. So it's with uh, pleasure, admiration, and a little trepidation that I invite Henry Marsh to join the stage. <clears throat> Humility in medicine, is that, do you think that's a, that feels like a recurring theme in the book, the acknowledgement of the fact? I think very early on you say much of what happens in hospitals is a matter of luck. Uh, y yes, I mean, at the same time it requires a certain sort of arrogance to, to be humble. I mean, you've got to be, it's a bit of a, <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a cliche, but you have to be actually quite strong and self-confident <clears throat> to, to admit to your mistakes, you know. Um, so as of everything in life, it's kind of two-sided. Um, it certainly is something I, something I was thinking about more after, after writing the book and I was trudging around giving talks. And it did strike me very strongly how, um, and I, I allude to it in the book, that when we're medical students, it's, it's very easy to, to feel deeply compassionate and empathetic for patients because actually we're not responsible for what happens to them. And then, um, it, when, I was, when I was a student, of course, in those days, well, there weren't phlebotomists, and you first, your first sort <laughs> of invasive relationship with patients taking was blood. taking blood. Yeah. Uh, and you had to stick needles into patients, and you're only shown once or twice, and then left to get on with it. And often these patients had no veins, and they'd be wincing and crying, yeah. and you'd leave a train of bruises up and blood arm, everywhere. Blood everywhere. And you knew perfectly well, of course, that you know, the houseman or the SHO could do it better than you. But if you didn't practice and if you didn't take on the difficult blood taking, you wouldn't get any better. So right from there, you have to start learning to, to, to a patient's become... It's no longer a simple relationship. And you talk about that um, responsibility <clears throat> for the person, equating sometimes almost, in fact, to a kind of fear of the patient, the responsibility prompts a position of fearfulness. Very much so. I mean, patients have become objects of anxiety. Mm. And I mean, at a, and you learn to lie. I mean, when you're a, particularly when you're a young consultant, um, again, just to taking blood, if you, in surgery, if you don't <coughs> take on the difficult cases, how will you ever get any yes. better? Yes. Uh, and this is partly fresh in my mind, because I was in, in, in lecturing in Karachi last week at a conference, and there was another English surgeon there called Leslie Hamilton, who's a He's now retired. He was a paediatric cardiac surgeon in, in Newcastle. And he was involved in the aftermath of the Bristol so-called right. paediatric scandal. And what that was about was about um, two fairly senior surgeons who rather reluctantly had started doing the, the switch operation, which was a difficult procedure for transposition of the great vessels. And basically their results were bad. Mm. And they carried on despite that and despite the whistleblower. But what the problem was in that time, the ethos was, well, all that matters, you had to do your best. Mm. You tried, and in fact, you tried. It wasn't negligent. You tried your best. And in a sense, it was, in one sense, a recognition of the fact we live in an imperfect world and we're not all going to be as good as each other. They're bound to be 
differences. We know there are huge differences in this country between hospitals. You know, UCH in London is the most heavily funded and sort of most famous hospital always has been. And if you go to Barrow in Furness, it'll be very different. So it is imperfect, but it also, of course, becomes an excuse for poor performance if you carry on doing something when other people are getting better results than you are. So it is, it is, it is very, very difficult. But, you know, to, to, we, we shy away from realising that maybe we're not doing very well. So um, we wear blinkers. When you went to the States in the book, you talk about <clears throat> being, you know, proclaiming your errors. Yes. Yeah. Or rather, not proclaiming your errors, but just telling things truthfully yes. Yes. as they yeah. were. And there was, a, there was a surprise at this. Well, there was a total stunned silence. <laughs> Normally, you know, American audiences are full of questions, yeah. and, and, but nobody said anything. So I... <laughs> So as I say in the book, I have no way of knowing whether they were either stunned by my honesty or stunned by my incompetence, um, <laughs> or, or maybe both. But having said that, though, it was shortly after that the, the book was published in America, right. and I got a lot of letters and emails, almost entirely from retired neurosurgeons. Right. Some of the most famous, and I was amazed. I mean, I'm not—I you know, have to boast a bit about it, but I mean, some of the most senior neurosurgeons in America, um, who said they loved it. Um, in fact, John Jane, who was the editor of the main journal for years, has died recently. He wrote, saying he'd read all the books about, by and about neurosurgery, you know, Cushing, Spitzler, Dandy, Penfield, all the great names. But he said, yours is the only one which actually, kind of, actually shows what it's really like. And I was hugely pleased by that, but I also got the distinct impression it was only after people have retired <laughs> that they can actually sort of take the blinkers off and admit that what I was saying applied to them as well. Just take the blinkers off or feel safe? Feel safe to be yes. able to admit it, presumably. Yeah. Well, what is that, then? What's the, what's the posturing implicit to all of this that says we have to, you know, almost the empathy... Well, I think it's, it's a whole... I mean, the answer to the question is why, why is it so difficult for doctors to be honest? Yes. And it's a long, it's a long list. Top for, of the for, list? For top of the list is um, patients want their doctors... Um, even though it's a more consumerist culture in America, but patients want doctors to be confident and competent. Mm. Um, and I said we have to pretend to that when we're junior doctors. Mm. Um, and by the time you're older and senior, well, actually, you're, you're no longer pretending, and one's no longer threatened by people wanting to get second opinions or things like that. But mm. we all learn, and of course, the best way of deceiving other people is to deceive ourselves. Uh, into developments of cognitive dissonance, hysterical dissociation, whatever. Mm. So I think all, all doctors, particularly surgeons, particularly if you do very dangerous surgery, like brain surgery and cardiac surgery, we've all developed this sort of, we all have a sort of split consciousness, mm. and part of us knows we're faking it. Mm. Um, and it's only when we've retired we can actually finally become integrated people again and admit how difficult it all had been. So why particularly surgeons? What is it about that? I think it's because, because when we make mistakes, the results immediate. Are, are immediate. And you can't... And you can't And catastrophic. And, and in brain surgery, catastrophic. Um, and, you know, when, when I meet a patient for the first time... With a, well, I'm, I'm semi-retired now. Um, when I meet a patient for the first time, I, I'm trying to explain everything to them. But I'm also having to prepare them, to some extent, and their family and myself for the possibility of a catastrophic result. Okay, that's. I mean, so this is really interesting because what I mean, in, so clearly in the book, and you state it over and over, and this is something that's a, 
we've talked about and it's occurred to me, the technical bit of medicine... Is extremely easy. Yeah, <laughs> it's the straightforward <laughs> bit, yeah, even accepting as there's difficulties yeah. to it. And, you know, yeah. um, the morality that, you know, I can but ought I to question is, sim is you know, it's starting to get more problematic, mm. but infused throughout that book and, in fact, infused throughout this whole um, organisation or whatever it is that Medicine Unboxed is, is the question of the personal yeah. and the subjective... And at every point, at every encounter with the patient, your subjectivity. At one point you say, I think, to one of your juniors, the patient will do what the patient does will depend on what you say to yes, them. Largely. Yes, largely. So your belief system yeah. is informing all sorts of judgments. Yeah. And I mean, the one way of expressing is obviously the only ethic in medicine is we should only treat patients as we ourselves or our, would want our families to be treated. In a sense, that is self-evident. But then you try operating on somebody you know very well. It's almost impossible. I, I did it once. Um, one of my daughter's godmother, who's a very close personal friend, was a malignant brain tumour. Um, it was a very simple biopsy with a thing called a stereotactic frame, so it's surgery by numbers. It really is very easy. Even that I find almost impossible. I was so nervous because I knew the family were all waiting to see me. They're all personal friends. I'd agreed to do it because I knew it was technically very simple. If it had been more difficult, I wouldn't have done so, you know, and it was a very clear evidence, proof to me of how we have to, you know, over, we have to become detached. We have to have professional detachment. And finding the balance between professional detachment and compassion is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's uh, I, with some patients, you know, I, I became too involved with them. And I had to tell one or two stories in the book where I, I basically didn't know when to stop. And that is often a problem in oncology. When do you decide, particularly with the more indolent cancers, where people live for years. And they, the patients become unrealistic. They think they're going to go on living forever. They've been through so much. And then to actually say, well, now it's time to stop, is, is I, I didn't know how you do it. I couldn't do it. Well, that's interesting. There was an oncology, um, you know, I'll, I'll, there, was a, there was a situation in the book where a patient attended for a biopsy who was clearly very unwell, an irreceptible, probable high-grade yeah. glioma. And the question was, ought we to biopsy or oughtn't we to? Um, and I think you arrived at the conclusion, well, let's, let's do this. It's, he's here now. It's almost easier to do it. Just, just hope the oncologists don't then do anything after that. Yes. And you can see how that kind of momentum perpetuates through the system for reasons of fear, yes. for reasons of exactly. organisation. And the problem with surgeries are always complications. Yes. You know, it's not a benign, it's not a benign procedure. And, and with, any, with any operation, it's a question of saying, what are the what are the risks of surgery, as opposed to the risks of not operating or the alternatives to surgery. And then again, that itself, you might think, is a simple factual problem. It's not, because um, the risks of surgery are risk of the operation in your hands, not what's on the textbooks yes. off the shelf. Yes. And if you learn anything from, from reading psychology books, it's how selective memory is, and part <laughs> of the book is all about you know, the fact we forget our bad results. Um, so even there, every time you make a decision about whether to recommend an operation or not, you're already involved in lots of subjective processes. And is part of the book, is part of the reason, because I wonder about why it is you would write this book, is it to communicate the truth of that um, illusion? To yeah, I mean, the, I was saying, this joke is true, I wrote the book, as of any author, I wrote the book first and foremost to draw attention to myself. And, <laughs> No, it's true, it's true. I mean, that's, that's not false humility, it's just being accurate. 
um, and it's because I'm the youngest of a family of four, and like all trees in the jungle, you try. try. <laughs> you, you're very keen to get not the oxygen, but the sunlight of publicity. Um, it's comp complicated. I've always, I've, I've, write, I've written all my life, but only for myself. And it was only because my second wife was a writer. And she saw some of what I was writing, and she said, well, you know, that could be a book. And that's how it came about. <laughs> I also, I come from a sort of Oxford intellectual background where one likes sort of provoking people and debating <laughs> and things like that. Um, but it's, it's, it's something, I suppose, I don't know. I mean, my, as I say in the book, my son from my first marriage had a brain tumour and almost died when he was a baby. And I don't think that was the main reason why I became a brain surgeon. He might have been. And I don't know what sort of doctor I would have been if I hadn't had that experience. <clears throat> I also went into medicine later. I, wasn't, I didn't actually qualify as a doctor until I was 30. I have endless criticisms of the American healthcare system, but one of its great strengths is that medicine is a postgraduate degree. Everybody's gone to college first, and they don't actually go to med school until they're 22 or 23. And I think that's a, a, a big is a good thing. But I think I've always somehow always been aware of you know the gap of both the gap and the connection between doctors and patients. And that's interesting about your son because you comment about. <laughs> um, the complete fear you felt at the time, mm. driven by this helpless, overwhelming love. Yeah. <clears throat> and then later in the book, talk about um, anxious and angry relatives and the burden that, you know, all doctors must yeah. bear that burden. But yeah. in fact, having been one, you recognize that there, what other response could I think, there be? I think it makes it much easier. You, 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 uh, I, 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 I think I've always understood. I get threatened and upset if, if, if relatives get angry and aggressive, it. but I can understand it. Um, and you say doctors can't suffer enough, as if almost well, it's such an education. We all, we all know that, but all doctors say as they get older, when they become patients themselves, you all say, I just didn't realise what it was like, you know. <laughs> and when you think, I mean, for me, the extraordinary... I wasn't very interested in architecture um, and hospital architecture. And it is extraordinary. That, and again, I didn't really realise it until my second wife, who has Crohn's disease and is often in hospital, and is an anthropologist, so she's hyper-observant. And she said, you know, the last thing you get in a hospital is peace, rest, or quiet. And that's something we all take for granted as doctors and nurses. We're all chatting away at the nurse's station at two in the morning. You have terrible acoustics. Um, and yet that's something we all just take for granted. And yet common sense tells us that if you're ill, if you're recovering from a knot, peace, rest, and quiet is, is very important. And we all know that lack of sleep is a huge physiological stressor. Hmm. Um, there's a horrible <coughs> experiment with rats where you put them on a tilting table and over cold water and they have an infinite supply of food but they can't sleep because they fall asleep they, they fall into the cold water and they're all dead after about 30 days from pure sleep deprivation <laughs> Speaking of rats I just want to um, pick up on some of your responses to the managerial structures yeah, yeah. of hospitals <laughs> and so in talking about emotion a, a particular yeah. emotion that um, comes up in the book is one of, of rage yes. and anger. Mm -hmm. um, that was another reason to write in the book. It was sort of my diary, it was therapy yeah. for what I was having to put up with. Did it, did it, and did it have a therapeutic effect? Yeah, I think it, it did, yeah. yes. <clears throat> and it, what, that anger at, the, at, the man, <clears throat> at management particularly, to me, appeared, because I can see how easily it would be turned into, you know, doctor-manager, but it appeared to be a bit about some of the trivialisation of issues that were of great you know, yeah. moral and clinical import. Is that something you would agree Yes, with? I mean, the bit, the, the bit I, I... I mean, there was an awful... In the original draft, there was an awful lot more of... Not NHS bashing, but mm. 
complaining about management. And my excellent editor, my publisher, said, look, <laughs> just a few bits, please. <laughs> so a lot, a lot was cut out, and, and rightly so. I can't tell you how, you know, my, 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 my sort of take-home message in my medical lectures nowadays is that other people are better at seeing our mistakes than we are ourselves. Mm. And exactly the same applies to writing a book. No book is so good, but it can't be made better by getting other people to comment on it. But there is a lot like of that. anger, isn't there, in medicine? Oh, there is, and, 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 and I was, and I was aware, well aware of the fact in the last few years of my career, I was increasingly angry. Mm. And it's the anger, anger of, of impotent, impotence. Mm. And again, psychologists are showing both with, with rats and people. Um, <clears throat> the most stressful situation to put rats and people in is where they have responsibility for something, but no power <coughs> to, to influence it. it. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not saying necessarily it was a good thing that the NHS I started in almost 40 years ago. But the fact of the matter is the hospitals, and as I said before, the hospitals were only one part of the NHS, were basically run by the senior doctors. Yeah. Uh, and as a junior doctor, you belong to a firm, you know, God in the heaven, all right in the world, that, you know, if I would ever have that hymn goes to Mrs. C.F. Alexander. You know, it was all very clear, and the lines of authority were very clear. Um, and there was a definite sense of predictability and belonging. Okay, some of the consultants are shits, but most of them weren't. Um, and all that's gone now. I mean, again, another soundbite is that saying, if a doctors have been displaced as sources of authority in the running of the hospital, but they haven't been replaced. But now was you have a whole halcyon? series of competing Was it really as halcyon as that? Or was, there, was it as open to abuse? I think, well, I'm not saying it's halcyon. <coughs> I'm saying for better or for worse, it was open to abuse. And the other huge problem we all face as doctors, and I still find that very difficult, is that power corrupts. Mm. And patients are terribly vulnerable. Um, and it's very hard, to, that's something very hard to resist. And working in in quite a few sort of developing countries, I see that again as well. The, the, over, the, the excessive power of doctors when you have very ignorant, um, ignorant, uneducated patients. And their vulnerability. So we were talking, you were talking, we were talking about Ukraine, yeah. Pakistan, and the, the, the fact that doctors were actually prime targets. Oh yes, well that, that's another, another aspect. That's because most of these countries don't have the rule of law. Mm. So, they, so if and there's no proper medical litigation, you don't have medical malpractice insurance or anything like that, None of, very few of them have any established law for what to do about medical negligence. So in many of these countries, the, the patients' families take to violence and extortion. And then again, the more, the more extreme lawless situations, as certainly was the case in Baghdad a while ago, the doctors are being kidnapped or their families were. And in Nepal, where I spent the last two months, uh, my colleague's daughter was kidnapped at gunpoint. Mm and had to be a ransom to release that. And the interesting thing, bringing it to mortality with those... So I would assume, I'd have a myth in my head that we were terribly distanced from mortality in this country, <clears throat> that in fact, you know, in other parts of, of, of the world, perhaps less developed parts of the world, there was much more acceptance of human finitude. But interestingly, talking to you about Pakistan, about Ukraine... I don't think there it's is. It's not the case. I mean, I, got con con I, got, I wasn't in Pakistan very long. Nepal, I was in much longer, and I was starting to get to know things a bit better. But I, I got contradictory messages in Nepal. There was most the, inshallah, Allah's will, people accept things. But then you heard all these stories about sort of a family standing outside the operating theatre with guns threatening to shoot the surgeon you know, if, if the operation didn't go well. Yeah. And as the surgeon who told me this story said, it does make operating rather difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, 
Dave, we think we've got problems here with medical litigation. It's nothing compared to... And it's a transaction as well that belongs to the wealthy, much yes. more so. Yes, exactly. Which oddly, oddly echoes the situation in North America. Well, it? that was one of the curious, very interesting thing which um, I've been writing about. Uh, there is this, um, for severe head injuries, it's verging on a fashion. We, we do this, well, I don't, but I have done. These so-called decompressive craniectomy, you take mm. the skull off to break the Monroe, Monroe Kelly doctrine so the swollen brain can expand. And it's become kind of not exactly de rigueur, but widely used, although because of the complexity of outcomes of head injury um, and, you know, the, the complexity of how severe the initial injury is, it makes analysing whether it makes a useful difference or not very difficult. And there was one trial in Australia which suggested actually the treated patients did worse. There's been a big trial which organised from Cambridge, Rescue ICP, which uh, is, has, has failed to publish yet, so we're all suspecting it might show the same result. Um, but the point is, when I was in Nepal, almost all the patients, all the bad head injuries, bad strokes, were having this operation. So a lot of them died anyway, but a lot of them were going to survive, probably disabled rather than, rather than they, would, they would have died. And the same goes on in America. And the reason why it's developed in Nepal is that my colleague was Nepal's first neurosurgeon. We trained together as senior registrars <coughs> in England, became good friends a long time ago. But then, because he was so famous and successful, and actually became the Minister of Health for a while, um, there are lots of other neurosurgeons now, and they're all in competition, and it's all economic, although they're government hospitals, in theory. What, to do as many of them as possible? Well, is that the patients all pay, the doctors depend on payments and patients for their living. Mm. So they're all locked in economic competition in a similar way to the way doctors are in America. So it struck me as very strange, what I thought was extremely excessive use of decompressive surgery. You get it in one of the world's poorest countries to the same extent you get it in one of the world's wealthiest countries. So the question and the underlying mechanism is, is comp economic competition. Yes. And again, one, although the NHS has many faults, uh, and the NHS is not unique in terms of, you know, sort of free healthcare, there are enormous disadvantages to, to running medicine on a business, business model. Well, let's explore that a bit. <laughs> so, there's, so, there's, so there's the... You write in the book... A number of times, um, I could, I can, you know, your colleague will say you could operate, and you ask the question, but should I? Yes. So the can ought separation. Yeah. So particularly around, let's say, the end of life, as much as anyone can gauge it, the yeah. withholding of futile interventions, inappropriate interventions, <clears throat> harmful interventions. If there is a financial incentive, anecdotally speaking, from what you're describing, in fact, the the, the threshold for going ahead is much lower. I think so. I mean, I'm afraid if I've learned anything from working in lots of other countries, is that doctors are easily corrupted. And I remember Nye Bevan when he started. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to worship the NHS blindly. There were lots of bad aspects, a lot of hypocrisy, typical English class hypocrisy about the way the NHS functioned in the past. And I think it's actually, in some ways, has become a bit more egalitarian mm -hmm. in recent years, right. so we may be losing that. But Nye Bevan said, um, when he was trying to get the doctors to sign up, he said they had stuffed their mouths with gold. gold. But we need to do that. Now, it's a bit like, actually, the rule of law, which is we all take for granted, and you go and work in a country without it, and then you realize what we're talking about. But the rule of law depends on stuffing the judges' mouths with gold. You've got, I mean, the judges in this country get very, very good pay, very large pensions, and that is essential. Um, in the otherwise society they're going to get corrupted. Right. Yeah, <laughs> otherwise they'll accept bribes. <clears throat> because they'll look for... Right. So it's, it's actually the same principle. If you have these very, very serious ethical and moral decisions 
people must make, you need to pay them well. So but, they're not going to be influenced by money. But of course, paying well is a, there's a subjectivity to that, isn't there? Well, there is. And that's like with, with the junior doctors at yeah. the moment. And I was seeing all this on the BBC yes. website comparing the junior doctors' yes. pay with other, with other jobs. Yes. It's not that bad. Uh, and the problem is because, although I, I made myself hugely unpopular, I'm in the Guardian. many junior doctors, yeah. my article in The Guardian. Yeah. But to a certain extent, being a junior doctor now is just a job like any other job because <laughs> it's no longer the, the sort of crazily long hours we used to work in the past. I'm not saying we should go back to that. But, but the sort of status of doctors is changing. But the hours don't define <clears throat> the professionalism. What is it, then, that is... I mean, by that measure, the, the professionalism would be easily achieved. You know, I'll just work long hours. It's more than that, isn't it? So well, yeah, that that, that, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, it's, it's, so hard, it's so hard to put one's finger on it, isn't it? You know, but there is... There, we, as doctors, we all know there is something special about the doctor-patient relationship, although it is easily abused. Premised on but, the idea of service, at least. Well, I think premised on the idea of service, yes. But also the problem that patients... It's, it sounds an awful thing to say, but patients I don't always know what's best for them. Mm. And, I mean, I was talking to you earlier, and the, the, way, the very graphic way to illustrate that is, is treatment of severe head injuries. Mm. Um, where if you treat the patient with a decompressive craniectomy or something like that, they're, they're more likely to survive, but they're also very likely to survive in a persistent vegetative state. And there's a website, I can't remember the name now, run by um, a couple of academics whose, whose sister is left in minimally conscious state after a severe head injury. It would have been very much against what she would have wanted. Um, and they've interviewed... <clears throat> the families of many of these PVS patients, you know, a couple of years later, and many of them saying, no, I wish, we wish we hadn't mm. sort of insisted the doctors did everything possible. Mm. Um, and it is a situation where if you have somebody with very severe brain damage, although you can never predict to absolute certainty what will happen, um, it's very clear to me my junior consultant colleagues in my hospital are much more willing. I watch them all change as the years mm. go by and they become more conservative as, as time goes by. But it's not just that you get maybe better at predicting the outcome. You get better at accepting you might be wrong. A and the problem arises. Um, and this, of course, is a problem <coughs> with oncology. But there are always a few exceptions. There are always a few people. Mm, it's all a Gaussian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yes. the patients all think and hope they're going to be the exceptions who, who do much better mm. than the average. Uh, and this is why nice, like one chapter in the book is about the five years I spent on a nice technology mm. appraisal committee. I mean, actually, that is all a huge mistake. They advertised for a surgeon on a technology appraisal committee. I'm a great technology tools, you know, equipment. Turned out to be a terrible abuse of the English language. It meant pharmacology and drugs. <laughs> uh, and the only exam I ever failed in my long academic career was, was clinical pharmacology and therapeutics. But actually, it, became, it was very interesting, and I was, I was fascinated by the process. And the problem there is NICE has to decide on the cost-effectiveness, the value of a drug, really on the basis of average figures. So you say, on average. So we're not going to look at the, what the, the small number of people who live much longer. And in a sense, in decision-making with severe head injuries, you have to base your decision on the basis of what's the most probable outcome rather than what's the best possible outcome. And, you, and as you get older, I think you accept it may be, in principle, better, but one or two patients die who might have made a good recovery. Mm -hmm. Then you generate a large population of people with terrible disabilities. But the fear and that's is very that, frightening, isn't it? And, yes. very, and it's much easier 
to treat everybody. Yes. And I think a lot of surgeons do that. They say, it's not my job to make a moral decision like this or treat everybody and somebody else. And then, of course, you don't see the bad results mm. again. So you're kind of... And it's, it's, it's one of the big problems in... Certainly in neurosurgery is, is follow-up. The, the patients who do really badly, which you know, means they survive, they don't die. Death, in many ways, is often a good outcome. Um, but you don't see them again. And then, you're, again, you have these institutional mm. blinkers. blinkers. Mm. But it's fear. It is fear. I mean, the other way of illustrating that was when I was still doing on-call for emergencies. My juniors would ring me up in the middle of the night with, a, <clears throat> say, a head injury or, or a stroke or something like that where surgery was a possibility. And uh, I could, in recent years, I could see the scan on my computer over the net. And if I said, sort of like, like, Rome, like Nero at the Roman Games, if I said, yes, yeah. operate, yeah. I'd get back to sleep. And if I said, no, let them die, I wouldn't get back to sleep. I was, I was worried I was wrong. <coughs> yeah. you know? So it was this built-in asymmetry to force us to over-treat. So the acquisition of wisdom, such as it is, over the years, appears to be a comfort with fear. Yes, I think so, in, in many ways. It's constant. I mean, I don't know what goes on in other surgeons' heads, but it, it's... I'm, I was reading somewhere, there's a bit of cod neuroscience, that the neural pathways for excitement and dread are more or less the same. And when you go most... Uh, there's no <coughs> single... Externally, there's no single neurosurgical personality type, whereas orthopaedic surgeons tend to be cut from the same cloth and eye surgeons, you know. <laughs> but, but, um, Everyone apart from the there, brain surgeons. There, yeah. there are always exceptions. We're talking yeah. about, again, you know, a Gaussian distribution. So I, I, I know lots of neurosurgeons. They all strike me as very different. But we must all find fear and anxiety attractive, I think. Um, uh, I mean, as I say, I described in the book, isn't it? surgery is an addiction. It's incredibly exciting. It's stimulating. You live for the present. I, I've no interest in gambling, but I've watched people watching a roulette wheel, and it's similar. You just live entirely in the present moment. Past doesn't matter. Future worries don't matter. And operating is like that. And it's very difficult And the to neural pathways it. is interesting, because a few times in the book you write this, and it occurs... It occurs to me it couldn't be otherwise. You're at the process of cutting through the jelly of the brain yeah. and recognising you're cutting through the stuff yes. of thought yeah. and being. And does that instil vertigo? No. It, it, I feel it ought to, but it doesn't. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, again, I, I specialise... I, I was the first person to do them in, in Europe, doing awake craniotomies for intrinsic, low-grade gliomas. And it, the, the tumours in the visual cortex are rare. Most, tumor, most low grades are in the frontal lobes or temporal. But I had one patient um, who was awake, sitting upright, and I was operating on the left visual cortex, and he could actually see, see his brain on the computer, on the, on the video screen, because there's a camera on the microscope I use. And there he was, it was the left visual cortex looking at itself in the right visual field. And you thought there should be some kind of equivalent to philosophical acoustic <laughs> feedback, you know, that something ought to explode or <laughs> smoke should come out of the patient's ears. But of course it doesn't, you know. But yes, it is crazy. I said, yes, it is crazy. You know, that's, that's the bit of view that's looking at itself. It's a completely, it's a completely counterintuitive thought. Yes. But everything we're thinking and feeling at the moment is actually electrochemistry. But it is, which is why it's really interesting. I have reviewed a book which hasn't been published yet. On, on new work in mind-body medicine. You know, that 80% of the vagus nerve is um, afferent to the brain. 
and the spleen is innovated, lymph nodes are innovated. So, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary, and only recently people are starting to do work on this now. I mean, I know sort of vagal nerve stimulation was, well, it works for epilepsy, but a new buzz, buzz ideas of using vagal nerve stimulation for autoimmune diseases to, to damp down the immune system. That's fascinating. But all this follows on, in a sense, from escaping Descartes' era of um, yes, the mind -body split. Uh, seeing mind and body as separate things. Can we have the house lights up, please? <clears throat> Just going to take a few questions. We have one down here at the front. Thanks, Talia. Hi. Um, you know plenty of neurosurgeons, and I guess. Um, there's one who's standing to be president of the United States. And I wondered, just um, from your insight, and I don't know whether you've met Ben Carson, whether you could say what about your profession would make someone very suitable for high office, especially if they've never stood for anything political before. And what Sorry, I can't quite I can't catch the question that. Either. What's the question? Ben Carson, standing yes. for president of the United you States. You hold the mic to a bit further away from your mouth. It might ben... be less boomy. <laughs> ben, ben Carson yeah. is standing for president of the United States. Yes. He's a neurosurgeon. Yes. Um, I don't know if you've met him. No. Um, I was wondering, from your insight on your profession, what would make him suitable to be president and what would stand well, in his from way? Well, from what's happened, one of my daughters is in grad school in, in the States and I was in the Brown University bookshop a couple of years ago and I came across a part of remaindered books going very cheap. One of which was Carson's book, what's he called, Gifted Hands or something. It was awful. <laughs> <laughs> that was before... That, I, was, no, I wasn't going to spend $5 on it. And that was before I knew he was going into politics. But the other funny thing is, in fact, coming back to Nepalese connection, the, you remember Carson was involved in Singapore with, with that highly unsuccessful operation on the two Iranian craniopagus twins, who were adults. And that was all because they'd done an earlier operation on a pair of Nepali craniopagus twins, which is portrayed, I think, both in the media and in the book as a great success. But actually, it was a disaster, because my colleague in Nepal knew the case, because actually, they'd been his patient originally. Uh, and one of them died, and the other was left to tell brain damage. So there's a lot of nonsense going on there. As to what we've all read in the media about Carson's comments about, you know, if the Jews in Germany all had carried handguns, there wouldn't have been a Holocaust. I mean, you know, what can one say? I think that answers um, the question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are there other hands? I talked loads of hands at the top there, thank you. And then down to the back. So the top, then the back. <clears throat> um, this is more of a thank you rather than a question. Um, I had brain surgery a couple of years ago, and before the, the surgery, all I wanted in my surgeon was certainty and confidence and competence. And I'm here, so I guess he had quite a large measure of all of those things. Afterwards, when I'd survived, I really wanted to engage with him in a conversation about subjectivity. You know, how would my brain be different because he'd opened up my skull and looked at it and kind of twiddled around with it a bit. So would that affect the way I, I felt and I thought and I behaved? And also I wanted to ask him what it felt like, you know, to open up people's heads and look at brains and slice into them and, and how did he sleep at night and, you know, was he terrified? And let's have an interesting conversation about that. And did you have a conversation? He answered that Well, question. not surprisingly, in a busy NHS clinic, you know, he wanted me out as quickly right. as possible <laughs> and, and looked at my poor husband with great pity. And, um, and then somebody bought me your book and actually I did have that conversation with you um, through reading your book and it was immensely interesting. 
and in a strange way reassuring that actually brain surgeons are enormously human and fallible. Um, I don't think I'd want to have known that before. But, well, that, that's... Um, so really, it, it's not a question, it's just a huge thank you for being so open and honest in what you wrote. Um, I, well, I really, well, really enjoyed it. It, it, is, it is a pro I agree, a lot of my patients when I was still operating regularly in London knew about the book. Now, you just said, if I was you, I'd read it afterwards. <laughs> um, it, is, it is difficult. I'm, some people, sometimes people say, well, you know, why have you written a book which is going to demolish people's confidence in their surgeons? And, and you know, my answer to that is, if as a patient you go and see a doctor about anything, and you, can only, you have a list of, you can only choose one quality, you know. In other words, you're saying, what is the most important quality in a doctor? I, I quote the famous one from Lord Moynihan, who was a famous general surgeon of the last century, who said, hands of, no, sorry, nerves of steel, heart of a lion, hands of a woman. So you could have that in your list of possibilities, or you know, famous, nice smile, good reputation, good website, you know, fantastic <laughs> face page, but all you can have honesty. And of course, we'll all go for honesty, because if you see an honest doctor, A, he'll tell you what the problem is, and B, he'll tell you if he can do it or whether you ought to go and see somebody else to go and have the treatment. So honesty is very important, but the price for honesty for us as patients is anxiety. If we know, and then again, you have this huge problem as a doctor, whatever your branch of medicine, how do you, how do you cheer the patient up and at the same time how are you honest with them? And it's put very succinctly by one of the very, very nice general surgeons who trained me as a medical student called Adam Lewis at the Royal Free Hospital, who said, you must never lie to patients, but you must never deprive them of hope. And to get that balance right, and Sam must be much, deal with this much more than I do, is often very difficult. It's, it's doable, because particularly the worst the situation, most, most of us develop a sort of split consciousness. People, when they're dying, my understanding is based on what I've read and from nursing my own mother, who was a very rational, I discussed it in the book. Um, but, you know, one part of the person knows they're dying, and another part goes on, goes on hoping. Mm. So in a sense, you're talking to two different people, and you're, you're giving two sets of facts. And one moment you'll say, well, you know, the chances are, you know, the end or whatever euphemisms one uses. It's very hard to, not to use euphemisms. And then at the same time, you <coughs> say you talk about the weather and what will be happening tomorrow, and life goes on. And you have this sort of balancing act, so it's possible. It's certainly wrong to be absolutely blunt and just read out the statistics and say, these are the percentage probabilities. But what does the percentage mean? You know, you say there's a 5% risk of this or a 7% risk of that. The patient's in no position to, to judge what that really means. And you also have to say, I do, I do talk in percentage terms, but I say, well, what that means is if I had 100 people with your problem, <coughs> one or two of them would, be, would have develop this, this terrible problem. But it is difficult, and most patients are optimists. They have to be optimists, and they say, well, all operations are risks. And I said, yes, but, you know, these are serious risks. And then you can say, well, there's a 1% there's a risk of serious trouble. If there's a 1% risk, you could die or be left. There are many, many different ways of the language is packaging. The language and the body language is, is hugely important. There was a study. There's a department of psychology in the University of Virginia in America which specialized very accurately. It specialized in predicting divorce. And what they'd do is they'd video a conversation between a, an official, they'd advertise for happily married couples, and then film them talking about anything, taking the dog for a walk, what to have for supper. And they had a panel of experts who'd watch the videos. 
And apparently, and then they followed these people up for 10 years, and they could predict with 75% accuracy <laughs> which marriages would end in divorce. Apparently, expressions of contempt was, uh, was the best predictor. But they've ended the same with surgeons getting consent for hernia surgery. Um, and they had to, with a similar sort of process, they had to predict which, which surgeons had the highest malpractice rates. And the answer was the ones with the lowest malpractice rates, they spent an average a few minutes longer getting consent, and they made a few jokes. Um, <laughs> so I don't know how Sam talks to his patients, <coughs> but I, I find when I look back on it, even when talking to people with a, with a highly malignant tumour, mm. uh, it's partly English, but one's, one's still making a few jokes. <laughs> Uh, as you break the bad news. Although you have to you know, make sure that they're appropriate jokes. <laughs> I'm afraid that really is all we have time for on this session. Uh, a huge round of applause to Henry Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks.